Listening to Pictures, Artists on the SFU Art Collection, is a radio program from SFU Galleries featuring voices of artists with lived experience on the West Coast, reflecting on their favorite artists and artworks in the SFU Art Collection. All recordings were developed by the artists themselves, resulting in unique approaches to the artworks they chose, from lecture-style meditations and poetic tributes to political commentary and collaborative sonic experiments. On August 18th, Lai Wan, a cultural activist, interdisciplinary artist, writer, and educator, spoke on Jin Mi Yoon's 1991 work, Souvenirs of Self, which aired on CGASF Radio and is now available on the SFU Galleries website. Jin Mi Yoon has been a critical voice in the development of discussions around identity within visual arts for three decades, and has taught as faculty in SFU's School for the Contemporary Arts since 1992. Lai Wan graduated from Emily Carr College of Art and Design and founded the Org Gallery in 1983. You can listen to Lai Wan as well as all episodes of Listening to Pictures at sfugalleries.ca. Welcome to Momus the Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Lauren Wetmore. Not to worry, your other host, Sky Goodman, is definitely still present and accounted for. Uh, she just happens to be traveling without a microphone, and we were so excited to get this episode to you that we couldn't wait for her to get back to Montreal. But we're making up for Sky's brief absence twofold with a surprise guest host for this episode and some primo Canadian content. So, very shortly, I'm going to be placing your ears in the hands of Jarrett Ernest an art critic, writer, curator, among many other things, I'm sure, um, who you may remember from his terrifically funny and smart interview with Sky for this podcast in 2019. I think it's episode 14. He does a tiny bit of trash talking about people who are always referring to Duchamp uh, that is well worth the price of admission. So go ahead and give that one a listen. For this episode, Jared is interviewing the Canadian writer and critic Mika Walsh about her new work of essays called Malleable Forms. Mika is a grand dame of Canadian art publishing. She has been the editor of Border Crossings magazine since 1993 and was made a member of the Order of Canada in 2017. And perhaps on a lesser note, but not for nothing, Mika has one of the great radio voices of all times. Malleable Forms is currently available from ARP Publishing out of Winnipeg, and besides being blurbed by people like Guy Madden and Chris Krause, it includes an introduction by the noted American critic and writer Barry Schwabsky. So, without further ado, I'll hand you over to Jarrett, and we'll see you next month. I'm Jarrett Ernest, your surprise guest host for this episode of the Momus Podcast. And this all started because earlier this year, I got an email from Chris Krauss, a writer I greatly admire, who I interviewed a few years ago when I was working on a book called What It Means to Write About Art. She told me that her friend, Mika Walsh, was bringing out a book of essays that she thought I'd like and asked if I wanted to see it. Of course I did. Mika Walsh is the editor of Border Crossings, a position she took up in 1993 Border Crossings is a magazine of art and ideas that's published in Winnipeg and travels all over the world. When her book Malleable Forms arrived, a beautiful pale pink object about 500 pages long, it was full of essays with titles like Measurements and the Missing Subject and Slowly from the Moon. The voice was idiosyncratic and searching, able to consider everyday objects and contemporary artworks in light of each other, she could read a painting, photograph, a book of philosophy, a film, a novel, or a poem as inseparable from each other within her experience. Subjects of the essays range from my favorites, like Caravaggio or Werner Herzog, Gertrude Stein, or Kim Gordon. I was really dazzled by this writing by someone I'd never met, and I was struck by how connected to her I felt by the time I finished the book. So I did something I really hate to do, hop on a Zoom call. Originally, we planned to transform this recording into an edited text, but when I sent the audio files to Sky Gooden, intrepid editor of Momus, who I've been in conversation with about art criticism for the past few years, she suggested we release it in audio form. 
As a result, there's a bit more casual roving around and looseness in the conversation than I would have allowed if I were getting to work it over and publish it as a text. But I ultimately defer to Skye, and I agree to her that it has a really beautiful freshness the way it is. And I hope that you enjoy getting to know Mika Walsh as much as I did, and I highly recommend that you track down this book. The subject is the ineffable. Spiritualisme, Hilma F. Clint, Paul Clay, Kai Althoff. Before global warming and the publication of Gertrude Stein's The Making of Americans, Paul Clay noted in his diary that in Switzerland the summer of 1911 was one of extreme heat. He wrote, quote, One went daily to bathe in Verm, to bathe daily in Verm day after day, to bathe in Verm. Roses were blooming there, which one swam by. The blooming roses swam by. Sadly, we bathed our last and took our leave from the blooming roses. Ming roses, close quote. Setting for the reader a sense of displacement followed by mild euphoria. And more weather, quote, autumn is here, the current of my soul is followed by stealthy fog, close quote. While the firmly entrenched skeptic in me read Vasily Kandinsky's Concerning the Spiritual and Art, with the critical distance from which a skeptic would read when I first read it. Like Kandinsky, I too am concerned with spirituality, thinking that in some form it may be the recourse and guide we can follow now. I am seeing it in art, or it may be that it's the art I'm selecting to see. But in one recent week, there was Paul Clay at the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa, Hilma F. Clint at the Guggenheim in New York, and Kai Althoff at Tramps, also in New York. All are spiritual and all are abstract in that what we are seeing is not a representational document. Kandinsky was the first to write about this in 1911 when Concerning the Spiritual and Art was published, and Clay was keeping his assiduous diaries, and Gertrude Stein was writing, but not yet publishing, her radical texts. And all were struggling with reception, Hilma F. Clint knew her work was well in advance of any audience it might reach and drafted an injunction stating that it was to be kept from view for 20 years after her death. In 1918, Paul Clay wrote in an autobiographical text for the art historian Wilhelm Hausenstein, quote, I cannot be grasped in the here and now, close quote, or alternately translated, quote, I cannot be understood on this earth, close quote and Kai Althoff obscures and obfuscates the presentation of his work, wooing and blocking its receivers with equal rigor. Calling out in a voice enfeebled by the distance of time, his triangular trumpet of audio amplification attenuated to a barely audible tone, Kandinsky cautions, quote, the artists must be blind to distinctions between recognized or unrecognized conventions of form deaf to the transitory teaching and demands of his particular age. He must watch only the trend of his inner need and hearken to its words alone. Then he will with safety employ means both sanctioned and forbidden by his contemporaries. All means are sacred which are called for by the inner need. The work can be drawn from the soul or core or spirit or the highly conscious-centered ego or a whispery, chalky voice in the ear, maybe a thin and miserable individual childhood, or the osmotic and transparent clear gray light that is the palimpsest of prairie winters. Hilma F. Clint, Kai Althoff, Paul Clay, each called on an ineffable source. Whether we receive it is up to us. If we are made uneasy in our material but rapidly degraded, exhausted world, by notions of the soul or spirit. How about magic? Magic is good, like a circus for distraction, or alternately for enchantment. Because I saw the work of the three artists in a compressed period, I came away with a picture, all three, like the endless silk scarves pulled from a magician's sleeve, myself startled by a sense of vivid color, surprised to find me there at the end of the artist's hand, limp, may be limpid too, 
and oddly compliant, readied and turned to receptivity. Ascending the spiral rotunda of the Guggenheim Museum, I was gently, nicely, happily overwrought. I'd started on a coil of awesomeness, and now I was an eager spring on a Swiss watch. Ten large paintings titled Group Four, the Ten Largest, and all astonishingly dated 1907, each measuring almost ten feet by nine feet and installed together in the first gallery space you see, winding upward, tempera on paper mounted on canvas. Tempera, with its special flat, gentle egginess, slow to apply, no oil for glissando, has always seemed to me to be the medium of miniatures, like the medieval book of hours, small, precise, focused, and particular, so intimate as to have been applied using only a single eyelash, and the quality of opacity, perfect. But here, of a size to fill a temple, which was their initial design. Directed by Amalil, one of the high masters with whom Hilma and her spiritual colleagues, a group who called themselves the Five, Afklimt produced a revolutionary body of work in a scale that could be described as heroic, were she one of the men who painted large, but decades later. She painted ten paintings never seen before. The modernist directive to make it new would have neither driven nor occurred to Clint. But these were new then, unseen because not exhibited, and remain new now. Unseen is apt. You don't know what you see, but radiant, beguiling, welcoming, inclusive, and absorbing color, a language, a system, a point of entry, and meaningful, obscure but familiar, a vocabulary of natural shapes and symbols, spheres, ovoids, petals, snail shells, whorls, hearts, leaves grouped into the four life stages of childhood, youth, adulthood, and old age. How wondrous, how dedicated, focused, and clear-sighted. She'd studied formally, was lauded for her early and accomplished portraits and landscapes. She was a dedicated naturalist whose botanical and insect drawings are exquisite, precise, and respectful. She had traveled and seen the work of contemporary artists, and indeed had shown her work a little. She was not an outsider, except to see better and more thoroughly, and to keep her work safe from the maw of the market. Through foresight and great good fortune, the work is held in a foundation established by her family, and the book accompanying the Guggenheim exhibition Hilma F. Clint Paintings for the Future opens with a statement by her grandnephew Johann of Clint. They will never be traded on the market. The body of her work will remain intact, while, it is suspected, her spirit soars elsewhere. Paul Clay, the Berggruen collection from the Metropolitan Museum of Art, was installed well at the National Gallery of Canada, as the NGC always does, ordered in the solid stone building in an appropriately straightforward, unembellished presentation, allowing the 75 small drawings, watercolors, and paintings to offer their own specific intensity. Actually, they buzzed, and here is why. Because they are small, discrete products of genius. Clay himself recognized the undefinable but also indispensable quality or state that is intuition, which he tied to genius. He noted that all the work, the endless hard work, the planning and organizing does not constitute genius. Quote, genius is genius, is blessing, is without beginning and without end, is begetting, close quote, he wrote in 1928. A small work Mountain landscape is watercolor and gouache on linen, which he cut and recombined with glazed paper strips added to the right and left and mounted on cardboard, and looking at it, we are everywhere at once. We are viewer as mountain, inside the range, flying over it looking down, standing at the foot and looking up in awe. The peaks point our attention upward and are castles and towers in the sky, where there is sky, and a yellow sun shimmers from the added strip and casts warm light and shadows from its hovering place. The mountains are pyramids and geometric cones, both volumetric and flat, and in spite of the two vertical black bands on the left and right sides of the painting, 
and even though the painting had a first border beyond which the section was recombined and given its full size of five by nine inches, this mountain landscape, which is not included in the NGC exhibition, is endless, without boundaries. Its possibilities are limitless. Birds swooping down and arrows is an aerial bombardment which could well be destined not to end well, except for its beauty. The ground, which is the air or the sky, or the place from which the arrows and the birds descend in an unwavering vertical trajectory, is eternal, misted, layered, scumbled, indeterminate, all the things a sky is without being identified as such. It is flat and upright, not overhead and lifted. It carries at its center a rosy smudge, a trail left by the red tail of the large arrow, which may be a fire. The arrows drop. The birds drop like stones, either missiles themselves or shot down and plummeting. The birds are diagrammatic, their bodies and wings assembled from black outlined, thinly colored squares. Their very thin bird legs and feet are held straight as arrows, stiff and rigid lines of propulsion. Their direction won't vary. The course is set. What it is may be known by these messengers from somewhere. Perhaps they'll fall forever. Quote, the strife of colors, the sense of balance we have lost, tottering principles, unexpected assaults, great questions, apparently useless striving, storm and tempest, broken chains, antitheses and contradictions, these make up our harmony. Close quote. This is not the checklist for a Kai Althoff installation. It is from the essay about painting by Vasilis Kandinsky, written in 1911, and included in Concerning the Spiritual in Art. I am immersed, sinking, and stumbling on the geographic, papery, tectonic plates that are the floor of Kai Althoff at Tramps on East Broadway in New York, a gallery that self-describes as being a series of glass vitrines, on the second floor of the New York Mart Mall, which had been a number of individual small shops, glass-walled spaces opening onto corridors for easy visibility and access, and now almost all exhibition spaces of tramp, hence the vitrine analogy. Even though it is on the second level, there is an aqueous, subterranean quality to the space, giving me to think more of aquariums than vitrines. That, and the location directions, 75 East Broadway, beneath the Manhattan Bridge. I like the scent of green vegetables piled high fish and seafood in large white plastic buckets or stacked on wooden shelves at 30-degree angle. Perfumes chemically sourced have a sharp, alert quality that natural florals don't. Very contemporary. This drifted up. I'm remembering the exhibition spaces being fluorescent and daylit. Very bright. Atmosphere and tone were delivered by the paintings. Some were hung in spaces where the walls were covered in what looked like industrial cotton batting, maybe insulation materials, maybe rolls of toxic asbestos. Like the tilting, sinking floors in some of the rooms where the walls were papered in similar material and the same color, a kind of nosebleed pink, the risk was more than balanced by the work. You'd hang upside down by your heels from a rain gutter see them, and if you loosed your grip, you'd fall into a place you couldn't look away from, would give in to, and maybe recover from, in time. Thin-limbed, malnourished, doughy bodies, recumbent through lethargy and weakness, clustered, reaching, clinging, their attention interior, distracted. Where figures connect, the alignment is unclear. Miasmic, would be a term with which I would describe the palette. When floodwaters recede, and you collect the things you once owned that remain and have dried, sometimes that tone. I haven't stopped thinking about the exhibition. A spirit abides in the work. It is soul, full, and its intent is honest. Hilma F. Clint held her work back from the public. Paul Clay initially believed his work wouldn't be understood in the world. Kai Althoff obscures access to his work, puts impediments to understanding in the audience's path, and debris and hazards, too, 
the artwork is to be achieved. Don't come in if you're slack. Don't bother if you aren't in earnest. Kandinsky was right. Quote, hungry souls go hungry away. Close quote. And so they should go away. A state of euphoria is reached, however transitory, in the space that hovers between apprehension and obscurity. It slips from clear grasp, but its traces remain. The artist is right to hold the artwork safe, to cosset it, and keep it near the dragon and the moat. Theodore Adorno believed that a piece of music, an idea he extended to some particular language as well, retained its autonomy by falling silent. In this state, it would retain its essence, its integral core. Af Clint, Clay, and Altov as well. So I, the way that I was thinking of starting, I really wanted to talk about the book. And I mean like the book as an object, as an mm-hmm. architecture, as an experience. Your collected writing is so, you know, profoundly permeated with a certain relationship to the book. But I'm wondering in the process of putting together malleable forms, how, uh, you know, (laughs) of your own writing from different times and periods of your life, how bringing it together into a book opened for you in the process? Well, it, it, it certainly told me, um, what interested me, because, um, you know, subscribing to um, the idea that the mind is shapely, uh, this <laughs> there was both intention and um, surprise. So uh, what did it what did the shaping of the book tell me? It, it pointed out, even though I had identified certain topics, it pointed out how often, even in my selection process, certain topics rose to the fore. And that surprised me. So it gave me kind of a photograph back of um, what I was interested in. I'm really interested in psychoanalysis as like a method. And I think one aspect of, of that is a desire to access some part of the unconscious that is structuring some aspect of your experience that you may not, that you're not consciously aware of and can only obliquely um uh, confront. And so in that kind of mirror portrait, you call it a photograph, which is so beautiful. In that kind of photograph of your interests, was there anything that surprised you? Um, it, yes, I think probably the biggest surprise, and it really did come as a surprise, was how often the um, issue of my uh, cultural, uh, religious, in quotation marks, heritage came up. Because in Winnipeg, and where I live and have always lived, I don't find myself inside a Jewish community uh, at all. Um, so the idea that, or the the recognition that this was a topic much on my mind was a surprise and um, kind of um, a grounding. Yeah. I, it, it, my, like the way in which I was raised Um, found very um, comfortable company uh, with Nathan Englander, Mm -hmm. even though there was nothing, I mean, our paths didn't cross, but they could have, in fact, probably on the same block in which I lived and he lived in two different cities at two different times. So it was, it, it, I didn't realize that I was so rooted in that cultural heritage. The essay in which you talk about Nathaniel Englander's story. Oh, yes. Trust accounts. Trust accounts. I was struck in reading at the persistence of a a lineage of Jewish cultural thought, basically. And I think not, I mean, particularly the engagement with like Rabbi Heschel. um, And I'm wondering, there's also an essay that you wrote about an emergence of spiritualism that was a more recent essay. And with Kai Althoff and Clay and, and Helma F. Klim. And so I'm wondering in the grounding of your recognition of engaging with your Jewishness, 
how spiritual a spiritual dimension or religious dimension connected with that it's the um spiritual aspect um that that has interested me i the cultural background growing up in winnipeg in in an area called the what was a notable area, the socialist area, North End of Winnipeg was a very rich, productive area, not just for Jews, but a lot primarily for immigrants, uh, was the sense of being an outsider. Mm. And if you're outside, um, you don't necessarily, at least I didn't want to be inside, but outside leaves you room uh, to be expansive and to drift and to dream and to live on another in another realm, on another plane. So I think that's where the spiritual aspect uh, comes in, and that may have found its ground in in my religious background, although I certainly didn't have a formidable religious uh, training. Mm-hmm. Uh, my The Jewishness is, is primarily uh, cultural. One of the subjects uh, chapters, I'm just going to make sure I get the name of it right, is uh, the ineffable. Yes. I think that even that as a category within the writing gestures toward uh, a spiritual dimension with which you are interested. It, it's, it's where I like to be, <laughs> in a state of hover. I liked what you were saying about an internalized um, outsiderness or position of outsiderness. And so, one of the things that you, just before we started recording, when you were like, I wanted to, you know, why are you interested in this? And one of the reasons has to do with the position from which you're speaking and have been speaking, which is in uh, Winnipeg. Yes, indeed. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that um, what I felt in reading this collection was um, an ability to have a point of view that was... um, not in New York City and not in Toronto. And, you know, it's it was like, it kind of felt like a place that someone could breathe. And so I wondered in how you have approached your own writing and also your editing of the magazine, um, what it meant to be located in the particular place where you are. Well, I guess what springs to mind other than the, the grace of all of this, uh, land that we have, the space that we all collectively inhabit, some of us uh, as uh, settlers and others who were here before. Um, The other image or issue that comes to my mind is profound isolation. Mm. So again, it's being both inside and outside, isn't it? (laughs) In a spatial sense. Um, You're you're either in the middle of things uh, using uh, Northrop Fry's idea that the center is where we are. Mm. So if you're standing here, this is the center. Um, but there's not that much around. And I think the isolation is both punishing and productive. Mm. So there aren't that many opportunities in Winnipeg to move beyond Winnipeg, um, however much you dream. Wow. I mean, one thing that is very notable about the voice that persists in the essays is it feels um, very interior or ruminative or like deeply contemplative, like it's very unhurried. And I think that that's uh, uh, that feels somehow related with what how you described the isolation. Well, um it's 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 lovely that you that you have a sense that the that the uh, sensibility is unhurried and maybe the sensibility is unhurried but I am always under the deadline gun. So, <laughs> the last piece to go into the magazine always is my essay and my lament and my endless plaint is oh, I wish I'd had more time I wish I'd had more time. So um, the thinking that goes on, the rumination, your very fine word, the ruminative quality, um, it goes on. I, I live inside my head. I mean, I participate in the world very actively, uh, but I, the space inside my head is occupied only by me. And there's room enough in there. <laughs> I wonder when you were talking about the geographic 
construct of, of where you find yourself, it makes me think about the importance of books and magazines as things that can travel um, easily between places in a yes. way that's different than, you know, in some cases, even our art or exhibitions or whatever. When did your connection, your kind of primary connection with, uh, I don't want to say language or writing, but almost like with the material culture of the word, um, what what occurs to you as as an important moment where you're like, I this is this is a lifeline. Uh, I I don't think of a time when I didn't read or wasn't read to. Uh, I I had no siblings. Uh, I had lots of there was lots of, of empty quiet space around me for reading. I reading hasn't ever not been part of my life and communicating through language, uh, storytelling to myself, uh, being alone a lot and to others um, in making connections. The, w the word written, I think of the word, of course it's spoken, but I think of it in, as print. Mm -hmm. Print is, is such a luxury, it's such a gorgeous thing. Mm -hmm. Ink on paper, it's the best. <laughs> I, even more so now when it's clear that it's a choice. Do you know what I mean? What, what do you mean is, what is a choice to be to materially be, engaged or to be a printed object as opposed to a website oh it's for me it's not a choice at all <laughs> <laughs> uh, the website is engaged because there isn't an alternative to it if you're living today yeah but i never uh, do it for recreation or on my own it's always in search of something i have to do i never um go to a screen i barely know how to turn on my television i don't engage in 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 media at all uh, voluntarily only by necessity <laughs> uh, one of the things that's striking and I think Barry talks about this in his introduction but it, and it's something that I um, relate to very very deeply as a project is the subject of your essays is very rarely a specific object but it's more about the set of relationships between a set of texts or objects, linking between them. And there is some aspect of that that makes me think about the role of an editor in organizing a magazine and conceptualizing the parts and how they go together as like, um, you know, the presence. That's the way that the mind of an editor is um, manifest in the object is that you feel it in the linking. I'm wondering how you see the relationship between the work that you've done as an editor and then the work that you've done as a writer for the magazine. And, um, you know, are they the same? Are they of a piece or do they engage you in different ways? Well, um, I guess I'm happiest when I'm writing. And since the job of editor and the job of the ed editor of this particular magazine is so consuming, I write um, not as much as I would like. So the magazine um, is uh, uh, improbable. It's improbable to do a magazine that looks uh, beyond uh, the material that's local and to do it out of Winnipeg. I mean, we've just done a stunning interview with Wolfgang Tillmans and he kindly wrote back in reading through it saying he thought this was the best one he'd done. That's wonderful because I've just been reading the Tillman's reader for his MoMA show and he's done a lot of very good interviews. Very smart. He is. Um, so the magazine is an improbable thing out of Winnipeg because it is international and it's, I mean, not worldwide. I can't pretend to know anything beyond a European Western sensibility. I, I would be, uh, it would be fraudulent of me to pretend that I know anything about such broad ranging topics. But even so, to look as far as I as we do at uh, topics that engage us and to bring them home because of the isolation so that artists here, writers, artists here can see themselves in the company of people uh, the, in Europe, in New York. And so it's, it's an improbable thing to publish an in, uh, such a broad ranging magazine out of a place like Winnipeg that has no magazine culture to speak of. We're alone here. Do you 
mind, if I ask something that seems like a little obtuse, what is it? I mean, it sounds almost a kind of um, obstinance that has kept you rooted there with all of its difficulties. And I wonder, like, how did you... At so many points in your in your creative life and your professional life, it must have um, been appealing to go somewhere else. And so I'm wondering why why are you holding down the fort in? <laughs> well, um, I a lot of it has to do with the geography, and with the kind of um, sc- scrappy poverty of the um, material I see around me. Um, I like worn fence boards and uh, I like knowing how back lanes look and smell. And I like bricks that are old and that show remnants of signs that were painted there or just somebody passing by who made a mark. It's a city that you can um, both apprehend and comprehend in its scale. And I think um, our inability as, as a, as a population or as a, as a people to recognize the scale is part of what's got us into the predicament we're in now. You can't live globally. Mm-hmm. You just can't. Um, so I, I like how well I know this place, even though there are so many limitations. And as I said, the geography is very compelling. The prairies are very beautiful. They require close looking and uh, endurance because they're they're dangerous especially in the winter but they're but they're very beautiful you have to be able to distinguish between a stem of one plant and the stalk of another and you have to look to recognize that there are differences and that's very enriching mm. in 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 every category um you know we're not burdened by a lot of choices here i don't have to think <laughs> So there's a room not to be materialistic and not to be um, acquisitive. There's room to be that way. And I'm here because um, my family was here mm-hmm. as an only child. I couldn't see um, saying, see ya, bye. <laughs> um, and um, my children were here. And also, as you said, this stubborn sense of not um, giving in, of, um, you know, Northrop Fry is probably no longer in style, but his, um, his dictum, his, it was, to me, it was a charge. The center is where you are, mm-hmm. made a lot of sense. And why should I have to be pulled to Toronto, which is a city that doesn't appeal to me very much, in order, or to Vancouver, in order to be who I am and make something for myself and for everyone around me. Why should I have to do that? So I dug in my heels and it's windy here. (laughs) I I bent and I blew (laughs) with the wind, but I I thought, no, we can do it here. It it should be possible to do it here. Harder than I thought after so many years, much harder than I thought. Well, the first, um, section of the book is quote unquote autobiographical, but it's striking when I started getting ready to talk to you, it's striking about how little I actually know about you in the sense that the autobiographical stories are very, very beautiful and mostly about childhood and family and plays. But um, there's a lot of information that I couldn't really find that had to do with almost like your education and formation and the, like, I have no idea what your life was like that brought you to border crossing, uh, you know, like in writing about art. And so I'm wondering, okay, we've, you know, you've, we've got the cinematic opening, you know, the girl on the, in the prairies learning to see separating stem from stock. And, uh, and then what, you know what I mean? Like, what 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 brought you from like that particularly articulated childhood experience in Winnipeg to the moment where you took over editing Border Crossing? I always wrote. Um, 
I studied very little. I uh, started, <laughs> I started, really, I didn't go to a way to school, to a fancy school. And if I could start again, what I would have loved to have done was to have gone to a, a wonderful school somewhere else. Um, there wasn't a, a place to study, to do writing studies. My mother had an antique shop with my grandmother. So I was always looking and, yeah. and making discernments. And I think to be able to be discerning is um, like the stem and the stalk. I can tell um, bone china from stoneware and silver from silver plate and a silk from uh, synthetics. I have, uh, I, I was taught to look and to be discerning. And those things have value. Of course, but I'm wondering when does that does that um, spirit of a, of discernment, which can be applied to so many directions, when does it feel led to engage with visual art? Well, um, there the cultural activities in the city included an art gallery, Winnipeg Art Gallery, and there were some individual commercial galleries. And it was kind of always the grooviest place to be, was where there was visual art. Artists are the most interesting people, uh, artists and writers. So it was a question of kind of hanging out and showing up and looking and then uh, getting engaged, involved with the magazine, with Border Crossings, which had started out as a small little publication called Arts Manitoba, floundered. It was started by Robert Enright, who um, was the editor of Border Crossings. And it ran for a while, and then it just sank under its own impossible weight. It started again, this time with a board of directors, a group of people who said, there's some stuff going on here. We should be able to write about it. There's enough cultural activity, certainly visual arts, to um, put together a magazine of some kind. And maybe we can extend it to prairies a little bit, to um, uh, east, going west, going how, however. we. So I was on the board of directors and of the magazine and board of directors it always sounds so grand. It was a group of us who said, we can do this. Let's see if we, if we can get some public funding and support. And in those days, the Canada Council had officers who were engaged in the culture, not in um, governance or administration, but in the culture and in assisting making the culture. So that was a long time ago and it was possible then and bit by bit, um, the magazine uh, began to occupy my time. Um, I think the way that you acknowledged it in the back of, of Malleable Forms was like so apt, uh, which was about the interrelated, uh, about the fact that all of these writings were written for a very particular context that you were forming, you know, and like, here it is, absorbing almost all waking time and generating the impelling energy that has driven me to the task, a tautology. So how did that begin to take form as a project? Like when you worked there to the time you became the editor, what did it seem necessary to you that the magazine should do? Survive, for starters. <laughs> because it was how I was supporting myself. By then I had my life had changed considerably and I was on my own. And it, it was um, such an exciting project. The idea that you could put something into print and send it out to people and they would write back to you or talk to you. And you were, you were making connections. You were engaging with people, with the culture and with people. Making connections always seemed such a, a necessary thing and more necessary now, I think in print <laughs> and voice. One of the things that I especially loved about your book, and I think also probably a reason why we're talking right now, is the writing that you've, the very, very generous and sensitive writing you've done of other art writers. Mm. And I, I think when I was trying to ask you a little bit about the project of Border Crossings, is um, that there's so many ways to write about art and historically, and by historically, I mean, you know, over the past half century, 20, 30 years, the um, fortunes of different styles of performance and intellectual 
trajectories have shifted and uh, some things were very, very dominant at a particular moment and some things were bad. I'm wondering, of course, there's, um, there's space for so many ways of writing and thinking about art, but I'm wondering as an editor of the magazine, how you conceptualized of the kind of writing that you wanted to happen there. Um, well, I wanted it uh, not to um, have about it uh, an exclusive clubby quality. The writing had to be intelligent. The writers had to be informed. But I wasn't interested in um, in critical conversation, in critical analysis, in that kind of language that showed that, yes, the writer had done his reading or her reading, but it wasn't the language that was going to share the material more broadly. So I wanted it to be accessible and it had to be good to read, whatever it was. It had to read well, but it had to be um, uh, an invitation to join the event. Whatever the event was being that was being written about, I wanted the writer to say to the readers, uh, the, primarily of reviews, but um, articles as well, here's what I saw, here's what was amazing. This was so uplifting, or this was so disturbing, or this was so transformative. Come on in and, and tell me what you think. But so that was that was the guidelines to make the, make it inclusive, make the writing, the language inclusive, to make the whole magazine inclusive. People are always startled to find how easy it is to be to write for border crossings. Just send me an intelligent email, and if the topic is of interest, that's it. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> you know, actually, there's something that is very um, when you said it. It was so illuminating that I, I almost like couldn't process it at first. But when you kind of described your your yourself or your education as being an autodidact, it exactly illuminates the thing that I think is the power, the unique power of your collection of essays. And I think that Barry talks about this in his in his introduction, or someone else does, about just like the breadth and curiosity of the, an openness of the, the mind of the inquiry. Mm-hmm. And I also kind of, I mean, I'm also an autodidact and I also think it's very embarrassing to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so I wonder how do what? you relate to this idea? Because part of it also has to do with an anti- an antagonism towards a kind of institutionalization. And I think that when you said you didn't want it to sound clubby, you wanted it to be accessible. I connect that with the idea of somebody who learned things through books on their own. Yep. That's correct. <laughs> um, <laughs> that is correct. I, you know, I, I, I'm not. Um, I mean, did you say that? Did you feel that it was sort of embarrassing to be able to, to or to say ident- identify yourself as an autodidact? Like it. I feel embarrassed to say it, but I don't want to put that on you. I, maybe I'm working through it myself. <laughs> oh, but 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 that's um, kind of courageous. Truthfully, it models the way I think that people should be. You should be interested on yes. your own. Yes, yes. Without without the supports, the formal supports of an education. I mean, and that it, it seems my sense is that that the parallel tracks that support an education are getting narrower and narrower. It's everything is directed towards a career or a position, an occupation. Finally, a pension and then death. Well, that's not so very appealing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm wondering how you see that the the narrowness of education or, or and, and the professionalization of the whole sphere yeah. as relating to the possibilities and practices of writing about art right now and how you've witnessed the... Um, ecosystem of writing about art in Canada in particular shift over the time that you've been editing border crossings? Well, there's less of it, it seems. It feels like there's less. There are fewer magazines publishing it. There are fewer magazines. Right. So, you know, art criticism in Canada is um, limited primarily to uh, some publications out of Quebec 
to border crossings and and there is still C Magazine. Um, so it's limited primarily to catalog writing and catalog uh, writing is commissioned by institutions. In Canada, it's commissioned by institutions. In the States, there is a lively uh, independent art uh, gallery, commercial gallery, public publishing network, it seems. But I still think there is a kind of prejudice uh, against catalog writing as being not serious or compromised in some way. And I think actually, uh, when we were corresponding about Dave Hickey, I think (laughs) his most important writing really being for catalogs was part of the one brick in the wall of of like why people were like, this is not a serious person Uh, because you're getting paid and by the by the people you're writing about. And I wonder, I mean, this it's interesting because your writing in this book is only for border crossings, as I understand. Mm-hmm. And do you um do you refrain from writing other kinds of texts in other places, like a catalog? I I have done other writing. I'm happy to do that. I don't have lots and lots of time. And I only write about work that interests me. So I'm I'm was your question, do I think that catalog writing is is um, is not critically sound or that it's not seen as critically sound? no, i was I was just curious. For me, it has so much to do with the question of form. Um, like i I find that a review in a magazine, it ha- it's a very specific form of writing that can happen there. Uh, and what I, what is interesting to me about the space of a catalog essay is that you could sort of force them to let you do some something so much stranger. It, well, it depends which galleries, I guess. I mean, if it's if it's good writing, if it's sound, and if you've maintained your independence, the independence of your opinion. I mean, you're, unless you're really gun for hire, why wouldn't an essay in a catalog be valid? Yeah, true. I mean, sensible. Where does art writing take place? I think that maybe that's like the real question. Where do you see its possibilities flourishing? Art writing flourishing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just putting the two parts of that sentence together. You know, it's always been uh, tenuously done and then a more substantial when it's brought together as a collection. She wanted to ask you about photography as um, uh, as a mode. I feel that the photograph exists in a, in a special place within the world of the writing. And I'm wondering if you feel a particular affinity or engagement with photography as a form that might be different than painting. I do engage with photography um, for all of the various reasons and the ways in which it presents. Um, yeah, I think photography does have a special call and maybe that's why I felt so close to Robert Frank. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because there's just a, a, a like a gesture in the essay on Frank that was about your um, personal relationship, but doesn't really go into it. And I was wondering if you could tell me how you um, got to know him. Well, um, uh, it goes back to 1997. So uh, uh, we wanted to talk with Robert Frank, of course and uh, uh, made contact uh, through his gallery, through uh, Pace McGill. And they, um, they said, here's how you reach him. And so we, we wrote to him uh, and um, he has a, a connection to Canada, as you know, and um, he likes uh, the unpretentious and nobody would call border crossings pretentious, certainly not even in 1997. It was clear (laughs) that we were holding it together. And he said, I like your magazine, Border Crossings. He said in his rough way, I'll talk to you. But he didn't say he would uh, agree to an interview. He said, "Um, you'll come, you'll come to, uh, to Mabu. And, you know, it was like being summonsed. And so we went, Uh, we, uh, I thought, I'll take him a gift. What would he, what would he what could I possibly take Robert Frank for a gift, Robert Frank and June Leaf? And my father always has wonderful ideas. And he said, well, what about Goldeye? Lake Winnipeg Goldeye. It's, have you ever heard about it? No. It's a smoked little tiny fish, not tiny, tiny, but this big. 
Um, it's smoked and it turns golden in the smoking. It's, it becomes red and the flesh takes on a reddish tint. And it's exquisite because it's a little fat fish. And when it's smoked, um, it loses some of its oiliness and it retains all of its juiciness. And because it's smoked, it's almost preserved in itself. So I went to the place that my father recommended as the best and I bought a box of Lake Winnipeg smoked gold eye and had it wrapped in some wax paper and put in a cardboard carton with a string. And I traveled with this box of fish and you could sort of see people, you know, <laughs> what is, you know, I had it under my seat. And we traveled from Winnipeg to Halifax, we stopping in Toronto, Halifax. And then we rented a car and we drove to Mabu. And we pulled up finally uh, with the box of fish and we stopped and bought a bottle of wine and some lemons and a baguette. And um, that was how we met Robert Frank and Julie. I brought lunch and he liked the fish and I showed him how to prepare it. I prepared it for him, how you take, take it, the, the flesh off the bones. And we, I said, we'll save the bones and the, and the skin. And he fed them to the crows um, that lived on his property, on the trees that he planted. And uh, we just uh, connected and we remained friends. And I saw, whenever we went to New York, we visited. Um, we understood each other in some way. Um, somehow or other, it turned out that his favorite baking was something called Mandelbrot, which his mother baked. It's not, not, it's like biscotti. And I said, well, I, I, I'll bring you some the next time I come. And I baked it and he said, like my mother's. <laughs> After it was accompanied by Mandelbrot, but we visited, we just understood each other. And he was, uh, a remarkable friend and to spend time with him and have him make a fire in his little fireplace in uh, on, on Bowery um, was really something. Uh, yeah, I miss him. I mean, that sounds like a, a really profound connection. And I, I think that that's kind of yeah. what we're in it for in a way in terms of in it as in like living. And I'm wondering if there are any other artists that you have felt that kind of profound kinship with. I mean, I guess, of course, it's interesting to think about Robert Frank and outsiderness as the way that people talk about Americans. Yeah, well, um, from early on a million years ago, um, alas, they're both gone now, it was Leon Golub and, and Nancy Sparrow were good friends. And I love the essay on Nancy Sparrow in particular. I mean, yeah. what an incredible artist. And individual, courageous individual. Um, who do I, whose work sort of quickens my heart today? Mm. Kai Altoff. Uh-huh. When we interviewed him, um, I wrote the introduction and he wrote back uh, very beautifully that he, he very much valued the way I wrote about his work, which for me was everything. Um, I uh, like Mel Bachner's work a lot. Uh -huh. <laughs> and I like Mel Bachner. <laughs> um, but I don't always have to like the artist to like the work. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, and um, Getty Saboni uh, huh. is someone who I think, whose work I think is remarkable. Yeah, fascinating artist. How did you come to know Chris? Chris Krause? Uh-huh. Um, how did I come to know Chris? It may have been uh, through visits to Winnipeg when she was invited to come here and she came to the magazine and we interviewed her. Um, and she came to Gimli where I spend my, grew up in the summers uh, down, the, down the lake from Guy Madden. Uh, um, it was that way and then just staying in touch, writing back and forth. And um, then I suggested that she be invited to the University of Guelph for the Schenkman lecture. Uh, my partner, Robert Enright, um, plays a role in determining who the guests will be in the Schenkman lecture is a beautiful series. Uh, Dave Hickey came, Ooh. that was when I met him. That was also my suggestion. Variously <laughs> <It was laughs> received, I mean, he was, but he, he knew that. Yeah, well, that, yeah, story of his life, huh? You know, he performed himself, you know, he performed Dave Hickey. 
And you know, what did people expect? You know, to have him have him deliver a, a stately address in a plummy British accent? You know, he was going to be. <laughs> <you know. laughs> I was thinking back to when I was talking to a lot of people about their writing for the art critics book, and I remember there was this thing where I was really interested in trying to locate what art was, you know, like, what is this thing that we're writing about? And like, invariably, you know, people acted like that was a non-fair question, you know, like, how dare you ask me that? But it's occurring to me now in thinking about uh, your writing, when you looked at the essays together, the kind of engagement that you've had running border crossings and your own writing, how do you, how does it appear to you is that a what is art question? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess it's a made thing. Mm. It's not happenstance. You know, when you see a, a, a smear on a concrete wall in a parkade, that's not art. Mm-hmm. Um, that's accident. I think art, picking up a, a brush, picking up a pen is always intentional. I mean, I think accident plays a role. I never know how something is going to end. I have a plan, but I never follow it through to the end. Um, But I think there's always intent, at least the intention to make something. So maybe it's back to manufacture, to making. Mm -hmm. Art is something that's made. It doesn't have to be beautiful. If it's made well, it becomes beautiful. Mm -hmm. And because your writing is creative, I mean, is really beautiful writing. I'm wondering if you feel that there is a kind of possible correspondence between the um, the object that's being addressed, or a parallel between the object that's being addressed and the the mode of the language that is being used to try and approximate it, or if you don't think of it that way, or if you think of them as so separate. Um, I think of it that way. Um, uh, And when I am speaking to someone about writing a review, I, if it's somebody I haven't worked with before, I try to suggest to them that they should make a piece that's commensurate with the work they're looking at. Mm. So um, you can't recreate it. You can't, it's not verisimilitude. It's not a copy, but it should be equivalent in attempt at, at, at any rate, it's not going to happen very often, but that should be the attempt is to, to create something parallel to the event that you're addressing, if you can, if it can be that, done. That feels to me like the most wise advice <laughs> for uh, moving forward with art writing as a thing. I mean, sometimes I feel we were talking about the absence, the disappearances of spaces for publishing and writing about art. And then sometimes I feel that nobody wants it to exist because if they wanted it, then there would be more places for it. And then I wonder, well, then what form should it take these impulses, these ideas, this this task of putting words to made things? Um, it, maybe it doesn't need to be called art criticism. Maybe it's something else, but I don't know. What do you think? Well, you know, criticism has a negative uh, or pejorative quality to it or association. So, you know, the, the oh, you're so, cr- so critical is never a a nice thing to say to somebody. Uh, (laughs) So maybe it's not art criticism, but it's uh, writing about and with art. Why wouldn't you want to keep writing about art? When I look at at a a work that's beautiful, um, you know, I have have two responses. I find that I want to go and make love. And uh, I always, almost always go to art shows with my partner and art's a turn off. Um, and then I want to expand upon it through language. Mm. You know, I, I want to tr- try it out on my own if I can. Yeah, beautiful. Seems to me that that generative quality is one of the finest things art gives us. 
mm. is to spur us to 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 make something else, not to disassemble, but to make something. And that 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 particular call might be part of the index of the value of the art or the or the effectiveness of it. Yeah. That it asks for that kind of engagement. That's right. When you look at something and you're you feel absolutely blank, no response, it's time to move on. <laughs> move on to the next piece, move on to the next gallery, look at a different artist. Yeah, if it if it evokes no response, then it hasn't been successful. Mama's the podcast is edited by Jacob Irish. We would like to thank Jared Ernest and Mika Walsh for their contributions to this season, and a special thanks to the SFU Galleries for their support. You can find us at patreon.com slash momusart, or you can contact Sky about making a donation at skygooden at momus.ca. This has been episode 41 of Momus the Podcast.